going to talk to you ab about right now is economic theories of regulation. How have they evolved over time? So it's kind of like a history of thought on economic theories of regulation, how they started out and where we are currently. These are the two things that I've already talked to you about, right? Markets solve information problems. And, well, one of the biggest theories of why we get in, into intervention or regulation is because there are information asymmetries, and you might have heard of that before, right? So solving information asymmetries problem. But what I tried to convince you of yesterday is that markets are way better at that than any kind of other institutional structure. Um, my other lecture today was about how the political process is fraught with problems, right? So if you put that together, it really seems like regulation is a silly idea, right? You put those two ideas together, it seems like regulation is a silly idea because even though markets don't always do perfectly, they tend to do better than any other institutional structure. And if you replace them with politics, you're replacing them with a, with a system that is also very problematic. Therefore, you know, you probably don't end up with anything better ever. But there are still lots of economists that promote, promote regulation or intervention, at least at some, on some margins, right? So, well, what do those people actually argue? All right, so um, some of you may have heard of uh, Pigou's theory of, of, of regulation before. Um, Pigou basically argued um, early in the, or late in the, late in the 19th, early in the 20th century, 20th century, that there are negative externalities from some forms of production. Okay, so negative externalities are things that are cost of an economic activity that accrue to a person other than the person that's taking the action. Okay, so markets can only be efficient if the person who's taking the action in the market is also the one that bears the cost of their action, right? Because otherwise they may, may engage in excessive production. Okay, excessive production. So let me give you an example. Uh, say you have a ranch and a farm right next to each other. Okay, now if this happens, then that's a problem for the farmer, right? So a ranch can um, impose a negative externality on the operation of a farm. If the cattle, you know, runs over to the side of the farm and steps on all the crop, then the crop is destroyed and the farmer is out of money, right? Out of luck. So um, see, you see here how basically the operation of the ranch can impose a cost on people around it, right? That's not incurred by the rancher himself. Okay, so the obvious solution to this is put a fence, right? Put up a fence or something, right? But that's not always possible, and you know cattle go astray sometimes. I don't know if you, uh, you guys live in Colorado, so you must have seen this before. It happens all the time in Utah. There's cows all over. I don't know. But, um, all right. I don't know how it happens, but it happens, okay? So, <clears throat> um, what Pigou said, the solution to this problem of externalities is, is to tax people that are imposing the externality. So basically, uh, the rancher should have to pay a tax, okay? And we can use the revenue from that tax to compensate the farmer. That was Pigou's idea. Another alternative to this taxing system would be to just use zoning laws to, well, make farms and ranches so far apart that they don't have to impose negative externalities on each other, right? So, um, uh, usually this, um, this applies specifically to manufacturing and stuff like that, right? So, you have industrially zoned areas and cities a lot of the time where there aren't any residential neighborhoods, right? Same idea. Industry imposes negative externalities on uh, residents, right? On people that are just living somewhere. 
Okay, so either tax or zone. <coughs> now, the implicit assumption underlying this theory is obviously that governments are efficient. They can efficiently solve this problem of externalities, right? Now, that assumes two things, and let me just draw a graph real fast for the people that um, are familiar with economics a little bit more. So, this, this is just a regular demand and supply graph. Okay, this is demand, and then we have supply. If there is a negative externality present, what's going on is basically the cost of production is too low at every unit, right? The cost of production is too low at every unit. So that means um, there's a social <coughs> cost and then there's a public or a private cost of production. Okay, private cost of production is too low. So we oversupply and get a supply that's greater than what's efficient. This would be efficient right here, Q star. And that's this Q with the externality. Okay? Now, what you have to do to remove the externality and get back to the efficient level of output is impose a tax that's exactly equivalent to the externality, right? Now, that's difficult, right? You have a knowledge problem. How do you know what the cost of the externality exactly is? You can't really tell, right? So, well, what happens is you can either overshoot and then impose a tax that's too high, right? And then you would create an equally inefficient situation where you're underproducing, or you can undershoot, right, and impose a tax that's too low, and then you're still producing at excess, right, above the efficient level of production. So it's difficult to solve this problem, right? We have a knowledge problem. And, well, governments aren't benevolent, right? So that's our major problem. But we have both problems, information and benevolence. Okay. All right. But that's, that's the original theory of regulation, and this is what, what's behind a lot of the expansion of the regulatory apparatus of the state at, in the early 20th century. Okay. <clears throat> so basically, um, if anybody's doing anything that's bad for consumers, tax them and make the problem go away in that way. Okay. Now, there's also a positive externality side to this whole argument. So positive externalities are exactly the opposite, where there is a positive benefit of producing something that is not internalized by the producer. So the, the producer can't charge the full price of um, what they're doing for some reason. Some of the benefits don't accrue to the person consuming. They accrue to everybody around them. And so the consumer isn't willing to pay the full price. Okay, the consumer isn't willing to pay the full price. And so we get underconsumption, underconsumption. Um, and the, the most prominent examples of this are education and vaccinations. Okay, so vaccines, if I get a flu shot, that's really, really beneficial to me, obviously, but also to all of my students, right? All of the students that I stand in front of every week are less likely to get sick if I get a flu shot because I'm less likely to get the flu, right? Now, I don't get a flu shot usually, so I'm a bad person. I am imposing a negative externality on all of my students. Now, we could solve that problem if they all would just pay me a little bit to go and get a flu shot. And I'd be happy to do that. Right? I'd be happy to do that now. Unfortunately, my students don't, can't overcome the free rider problem somehow. They can't overcome the free rider problem and agree to pay me, all of them together. Some of them just think I'm, I'm being an ass for not getting a flu shot. But all right. Um, the education point is education is socially beneficial. So the fact that you guys are here and learning about liberty is really good for the world, 
right? That's why we're all here. We think that it's good that more people know about these ideas. There's a positive externality to learning about something that goes beyond the benefit to the individual. So you're actually providing a, a public service right now, in case you didn't know, okay? You're providing a public service to the world for being here. Right, somebody should pay you for being here, okay? If the world were efficient, somebody should pay you for being here. Okay, so you see in both cases here, these are things that people should consume more of, is the theory, and so we should subsidize their consumption of vaccines and education. Okay, so you see how basically everything that the government does is based on this theory, right? If there's a positive externality, they subsidize. If there's a negative externality, they tax, okay? So cigarettes are a good example of why the government, or, or well, negative externalities are often used as an argument for anything the government does to prevent people from smoking, right? Because the healthcare costs that you impose on society are presumably larger if you smoke. Now that's kind of an iffy argument, right? Some people argue that smokers die younger and that's good. They're actually less costly, right, to society. But, well, who knows? All right. Um, so that's Pigou's story. Now, um, Ronald Coase came along a little bit later in the 1940s and 50s and started arguing that Pigou has been missing something here. There's something missing in this story of negative and positive externalities. Because really, if there are negative externalities, people can pay each other off. Like I was just saying about my students, right? They could pay me. People can pay each other to prevent negative externalities from spilling over. People can also pay each other, each other to increase consumption of something that produces a positive externality. And they can do that privately. They can privately agree to solve these problems without intervention. And they will do so if it's profitable for them. Okay, so basically what he was saying is Pigou is ignoring the fact that there's, this is a reciprocal problem. Yes, the farmer is negatively affected by the actions of the rancher's cattle, right, or by the actions of the, of the rancher. If the rancher increases the size of his herd, there's a greater probability that some cattle will step onto the farmer's property and destroy his crop, but the rancher doesn't pay for that, so he, does too, he has too much cattle on his land, right? But if the farmer is really effectively producing and profitable, if what he's doing is actually good for society, then he should be able to pay off the, the rancher and pay him to have fewer cattle on his land. Okay, he should be able to pay him. He could also just build a fence, right? If the farmer was really doing something that's socially beneficial, if he really were producing something that society needs, then he'd be making a profit and he could build a fence. Okay, so either build a fence, pay off the rancher to have fewer cattle on his land, or he could move. Right? But the same thing is true for the rancher also. So um, the rancher could build a fence. Right? If it's too costly to compensate the farmer for any damage that he does to the farmer's land, then the rancher could build a fence. And if the rancher's production is profitable enough to cover that fence, then we want him to stay in business. Otherwise, we really don't want him to stay in business because he's doing something that's socially not beneficial. Right? So basically, Coase's argument is these people will internalize the externality. They will pay for the cost of their actions if it's profitable to do so. And only then do we want both of them to be in business anyways. Okay? All right. So both the farmer and the rancher could build a fence, pay each other off to stop doing what they're doing, or move. Okay? So basically the idea is that 
<clears throat> contracts will always end up maximizing social welfare. Contracts will always end up maximizing social welfare because the more efficient producer will stay in business. Okay, so farming and ranching, if they're really close to each other and create a lot of ne negative externalities for each other, will not continue to persist unless it's socially efficient somehow, okay? Unless they can resolve their dispute privately. And they will do so if you just allocate a property right to either one of them, okay? So basically, they can go to court over their dispute. The court may assign a property right to the farmer and say, any time the rancher's cattle strays, you have to pay the rancher. Sorry, every time the, the, ca the rancher's cattle strays, the rancher has to pay you, right? That would be the farmer having the property right. Or alternatively, the court could assign the property right to the rancher and say, you're fine to have your cattle stray. And in that case, the farmer would bear the burden, right? In that case, the farmer would bear the burden. But in either case, what Coe said is, independent of who the property right gets assigned to by the court, the two parties will negotiate around the property rights assignment after the fact until the more efficient party is, ends up being the one, the, the more efficient producer ends up being the one that stays in business. Okay, so let's assume the farmer gets the property right. That means now the rancher has to compensate the farmer every time the cattle steps over the land, right? Now, that will continue to happen if the rancher is really the more profitable producer. If the farmer is the more profitable producer, then the rancher will go out of business because he can't continue to operate and pay the farmer all the time. Okay, you see how that works? And if it's the other way around, then, well, same thing happens. Okay, so we will get the socially efficient outcome, the socially optimal outcome, independent of who gets the property right, and we don't have to have the government intervene. They'll actually figure it out on their own. Okay, they'll actually figure it out on their own. All right, so the Coase theorem then, and you may have learned about this in your econ classes already, is that if property rights are clearly defined, agents can reach optimal allocations of resources by freely bargaining, okay, by freely bargaining with each other. And the final allocation of resources will be independent of, um, from the allocation of the liability by the courts. Okay, so no matter what the court does, you will get the efficient outcome at the end of the day. Okay. Now this Coase's theory, notice, does not rely on the government to do anything efficiently, right? But it does rely on somebody to do something. Who does it rely on to do something efficiently? Somebody has to assign the property right in the first place, right? So the courts. So this theory relies on courts doing something. Now, notice it's not as much relying on the courts as Pigou's theory is relying on government. Because at the end of the day, Costa's theory says that you'll end up with an efficient allocation of resources independent of who receives the property right. So really, no matter what courts do, as long as they do something, you'll get the right outcome. Okay, you'll get the right outcome. The only thing that courts can do that might be bad is to impose an injunction, which just prohibits one party from operating completely. It would be better from the, for them to actually just assign a property right and let parties negotiate on their own. Okay, so as long as courts are aware of this, or as long as society is, is aware of this, courts can still be corrupt and allocate the property right to whoever pays them more in bribes, right, if they were corrupt like that. Um, but we'd still get an efficient outcome. 
Okay, so less reliant on benevolence than Pigou's theory. Okay, now um, the challenge to um, well to Pigou's or sorry, the challenge to Coase's theory was basically if Coase is right and we don't really need intervention, right? Then why is there so much of it, right? And we've gone through some theories of why that might be already, right? I talked to you about concentrated benefits and diffused costs and interest groups earlier, right? So you know that intervention will happen not because it's the right thing to do, but because it redistributes resources in society to some at the expense of a large group of people, right? So, well, that was basically, um, in, in regulatory theory and economics, this insight was, well, kind of new um, in the 1960s and 70s. And it was called Economic Theories of Regulation. And at Chicago, at the University of Chicago, a lot of economists talked about this. They basically kind of discovered the interest group theory of regulation. This is what this is, okay? Um, one variant of this theory is the theory of the bootleggers and the Baptists, and you may have heard of this, okay? So, not only do governments intervene when there's a small group that can bring up the means to convince the government that they should intervene in their favor, but sometimes, sometimes they'll intervene because there are two groups that are interested in getting regulation passed. Okay, so this isn't a theory of the minority overpowering the, uh, overpowering the majority, like the sugar quota that I was telling you about. This is actually a theory of there is a majority of the population in favor of regulation, and it kind of combines the insights of ignorance and irrationality. Okay, so the Baptists right here, this is the Women's Christian Temperance Movement, right? Um, they were in favor of prohibition because they thought that alcohol was bad, right? They thought that alcohol was bad, and most of, well, most of their reasons were something like families are neg negatively affected by alcoholism. Right, or by excessive drinking. And so women, in particular, are negatively affected. Okay? Um, on the other side, you have the bootleggers, and they were interested in having prohibition. Why were the bootleggers interested in having prohibition? Yeah, because they, they could charge more for the liquor they were selling. Right? They knew they were going to continue to sell liquor, and so uh, you know, they knew that the prices of liquor were going to go up, kind of like people that sell drugs really appreciate the drug laws currently, right? because they can sell the stuff for for more. Okay, so these two groups get together. They don't like each other, but they combine forces to get the regulation that favors both of them, basically. Right? So you can see how you can even have a majority in favor of regulation in this case.